Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Strength and Conditioning at Hurricanes Rugby in New Zealand, David Gray. We, we do use MAS running. I think, look at it, in my experience of what I've found is that people tend to almost uh, become the MAS guy or become the tempo guy or they, they get very com- compartmentalised in their thinking. And I always look at this and say, look, there's, there's a lot of tools in the toolbox. What tool is most appropriate for, um, for what we're trying to develop? Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm going to make this introduction nice and short. So there's some really great information coming up from David Gray in this episode. Uh, really applied stuff, looking at his um, how, he, how he plans his season around a, a difficult schedule in New Zealand, um, as well as how he plans his gym sessions and what actually goes into them sessions uh, at various time points in the year. But just before we get into the chat with uh, David, just want to say a massive thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nord Board, for sponsoring this episode today. So also massive thanks to the guys at Forstex. So if you don't know anything about Forstex, firstly I'd encourage you to check out uh, episode 139 with Dr. Daniel Cohen, who is the, uh, one of the co-founders of Forstex. But if you don't know anything about Forstex, so Forstex is um, a dual platform uh, hardware and software, dual force platform. So it basically takes the uh, the testing and the monitoring out of the lab uh, and into the training and into the training ground. So the massive uh, advantage of using the Forstex system is the simplicity and the speed of the testing procedure and the testing process. So it can be used for performance profiling, um, injury risk screening, fatigue readiness, monitoring, um, and training and rehab progressions. So it just happens that, uh, that Davey um, in this episode is also a Forstex user. So there's a little bit of applied stuff in there as well for anyone that wants to know a little bit more about Forstex. But definitely encourage you to check out number uh, 139 of the podcast with Dr. Daniel Cohen. So over to the podcast with Davey. Hope you enjoy and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning I have the pleasure in speaking to Head of Strength and Conditioning at the Hurricanes in New Zealand, Davey Gray. So welcome to the podcast, Davey. Thanks so much, Rob. Um, looking forward to having a chat. Nice, no, good to have you, mate. Anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of an intro on you uh, and maybe a little bit about how and why you ended up where you did, what you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. Um, so obviously out in New Zealand now, um, as, you, as you probably gather, originally from Scotland, um, I uh, completed my undergrad in sports science um, through Edinburgh University in the, in the late 90s and then popped out to New Zealand just for a bit of an OE um, experience with a mate of mine and then returned to the UK in 2001 and then I was fortunate enough, um, my background is, is in rugby and I was fortunate enough over um, the next four years to get picked to play for the, the Scotland Sevens team which was fantastic because I had an interest in strength and conditioning and, and high performance sport already and then 
to actually go out and be able to live that kind of uh, dream, if you like, as a player was fantastic. But also, uh, I was fortunate that because it was a Commonwealth sport at that time, um, seven, the Sevens programme had some support from the Institute of Sport in Scotland. So it kind of exposed me to some of the, the methods and um, concepts used to try and develop performance, which was which was fantastic. So uh, that was a great four years. And then from there, I uh, was fortunate enough to get a a job down uh, heading up the SNC program with Exeter Chiefs so that was back in 2005 and uh, then moved out to New Zealand in, in 2006 where my, where my wife's from and initially I worked for the Taranaki Rugby Union uh, started off for my first year working with the academy players then did a couple of seasons leading the program with the MPC team and then in 2009 uh, got a call kind of out of the blue to see if I'd be keen to come down to Wellington and join the Hurricanes, and uh, which I was, and spent uh, a couple of years working as an assistant SNC. And then in 2000, uh, well, for the 2011 season, I uh, was fortunate enough to get asked to take over the programme and, and head up the SNC programme, and I've, I've been here ever since, really. Superb. So, anyone that doesn't know about the uh, rugby union system in New Zealand, do you just want to give us a little bit of an overview of how it works? Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, so a little bit different potentially, certainly from some of the UK models. Um, the Super Rugby teams, they don't have a designated academy system or second team system. So there's really close relationships with the provincial unions. And, and we have certain provincial unions that are, our, um, I suppose for want of a better term, our feeder teams. And we try and have very cro- close relationships with those guys. They have their own coaches and SNC staff and physios working at a provincial union level but obviously the the young talent is coming through their systems so we try and um, keep tabs on that talent help out where we can um, and really try and develop the talent through to hopefully becoming uh, really great Hurricanes players and on, on the flip side of that um, our players or many of our players if they're not all blacks will go back and play for the provincial union um, at, at some point in the season so again we transition players um, back into their environment so uh, I'm not sure if it's quite unique but it's certainly um, a little bit different having players playing for at least two different teams in the one season but it's uh, it's quite refreshing and it, it sort of develops skills outside the, the classic S&C role where you try to transition players back in and develop relationships to try and keep maximising performance whilst the player's in a, in a different environment. Mm-hmm. How did you manage the transition to coaching from playing? Did you find that hard or was that pretty pretty easy? Yeah, it, it was tough. Um, as you can imagine... Uh, playing on that World Sevens circuit and you're travelling around and you go to places like Hong Kong and LA and it was tournament in Wellington. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty cool time of your life. So <laughs> it was a big call. Um, it was a big call when I got this uh, opportunity down in Exeter. But it, it's even more competitive now the SNC industry. But even back then it was pretty competitive and to turn down a full time role um, in, in a sort of longer term career was. You know, wasn't really an option. So I was fortunate. Um, I actually started there in two thousand and five, and managed to get a few weeks off to still play a couple of tournaments for the Scottish team in early two thousand and six, and then oh, uh, nice. then got a little release to play in the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. So it was kind of a. It actually worked out really well. It got my foot in the door S and C wise, but it was a probably a natural way to finish my sevens career at that Commonwealth Games in Melbourne. So it, it was probably actually the perfect storm, and it was a. Kind of great ending in one way and a, a great start in the, in the other. Mm-hmm. 
best of both worlds right at the end then exactly yeah exactly great Get, uh, best so, of both worlds, so, so apart, yeah, definitely. So I mean, a, a, apart from the um, kind of structural differences between New Zealand and maybe what happened, what goes on in Europe in the UK, what's the what's the main differences that you've that you've come across with regards to the players and the the kind of training that they do um, and how you might have to approach them differently. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's um, look. It's been a while, obviously, since I've worked in the UK, so so things may have changed. But what what I do know is the New Zealand system quite well, and obviously I've talked to people in the UK or Europe. And um, look, I think there's there's potentially more focus here placed around um, skill development and um, the conditioning side of the game. And and that that's probably reflected in in how the Super Rugby competitions played, and part of that's cultural, and part of it's also environmental. The conditions we play rugby in are are, are probably quite different from the, from Europe. So hence, there's there's differences in how we prepare the players. And um, you know, I think a good example. I think I actually heard Alan Walters talking about this um, on one of your podcasts, and and he's experienced of both. And maybe in New Zealand, if there's one option of what training we're going to do, we'll probably try and condition the guys in the field whereas from what I hear in Europe maybe they would do a weight session and that's just uh, doesn't mean that one right or one is right or one is wrong it's just it probably reflects the type of rugby that is maybe played and maybe strength and size is more important in Europe and maybe running ability is a little bit more important out here but I'd imagine there's a lot of commonality as well um, just those probably more subtle differences between the two hemispheres so is there any difference, I mean, again, I know it's a, a little bit ago that you've worked in the UK, but how you, how you deal with coaches in SNC coach? Do they expect different things from you? Do the players expect different things from you? Yeah, like there's, there's certainly high expectations. Um, there is a, there's certainly a, I mean, maybe requirements, maybe a bit strong of a word, but if you've not got an understanding of rugby and, you might be a very good S&C coach, but everything's around the transfer back to the game. And um, and that's in how you talk to coaches and players. You have to have a an understanding of the game and the language that's being used and be able to try and demonstrate, hey, um, it's, for example, I might, this guy might be getting stronger in the gym, but people over here want to know, well, how does that impact what happens on, the, on that bit of grass on a Saturday? They're, they're sometimes not too interested in a guy's bench press has gone from 150 to 155. They want to know how that makes him a better rugby player. And I'm not sure, uh, again, difficult to comment on the European scene if that's the same over there or not. But I know down here it's certainly a a, a huge factor in, in, in how well you get on. So that obviously, I'm guessing, leads to people like you who have come from a playing background rather than the kind of traditional university accreditation masters route yeah potentially and um look i don't think um there's necessarily a, a it's probably is a benefit i think having an understanding of the game and um but i don't think it's a closed door by any means if you if you're a good candidate you mm-hmm. know it's a game of rugby is not rocket science so somebody who's switched on can pick things up reasonably quickly you know but it certainly helps and and even even from getting your foot in the door around networks you know if you've got coaches that you know or players that you know um 
the world of rugby is quite a small um, community, so people know people and that can open those doors, which might make it a little bit easier. Uh, you know, that initial foot in the door can be quite tricky sometimes. So, um, yeah, it probably does help, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just want to move things on um, and discuss how you uh, plan and prepare your players across the pre-in and off-season. Yep. Would you give us a pretty bit of an overview of your maybe philosophy and, and plan? Then we'll kind of delve a little bit deeper into certain qualities. Yeah, absolutely, Rob. So the, the first thing we do, I suppose, from a planning stage or our, or our periodization uh, models that we use, um, we, we, we've moved more to what we term the, the, like a multi-targeted block periodized approach. And, and we feel that trying to develop um, multiple compatible qualities where possible uh, gives us the best bang for our buck. So when we look at our annual plan design, there's certain blocks that we'll put in straight away. So we know, for example, when the start of the season is, we know when there's demanding games. It might be two or three New Zealand games in a row, uh, which are usually very intense and physical. So that might be a period where we deliberately try and unload players. There's also um, at least one time in the year you'll be doing some pretty serious long-haul travel. So we can play in Wellington on a Saturday and we can be playing in Johannesburg at altitude the following Saturday and then maybe travelling like we did this year, back to Perth for the next Saturday and then back to New Zealand for the following Friday. So there's periods in the year where we know we need to unload and we can put those in straight away and that can help start to shape how we're going to periodise across the season. But um, from a general perspective, we do try and train these compatible qualities. And um, the the beauty of this multi-targeted block periodise approach is it allows you to train... Uh, multiple components of fitness at, at one time. So the one of the issues with classical block periodization is obviously it tends to saturate one um, one ability, one capacity, which isn't really um, doesn't really work in team sport. So at a big picture level, that's what we'll use. We'll, we'll use classic kind of accumulation phases where we um, have a big strength focus. We'll try and then phase potentiate into say a strength speed cycle. And, um, and then realise that in, uh, in a speed strength cycle and we'll sort of rotate those blocks across the year, uh, specifically targeting those periods of the season where I've mentioned before where we typically try and have um, unloading or realisation phases you know, around travel so it's moving lighter weights quite quickly and there's less fatigue flowing around the, the guys so we're trying to um, be nice and fresh when the, when the fixture list of travel demands are pretty hard on us. So for anyone that doesn't know, what do you mean by a realisation phase? So a, a realisation phase with, under the block model, what, what you're basically trying to do all the time is you're trying to train qualities in, in, in blocks of time. So that might be around about four weeks, but it could be anything from two to six weeks, a training, a training block. And you're trying to develop qualities over that period of time that will then potentiate or enhance the qualities that you want to then um, improve in the next block so uh, a classic kind of the block approach really is to have an accumulation phase then a transmutation phase and then a realization phase and the realization phase can be again anything from sort of two to four weeks in length but that's where you're trying to almost peak performance in those that period of time and you try to take all that previous training that kind of uh, builds upon each other so it's kind of sequentially integrated across those phases to 
then ultimately maximise performance for for that realisation phase. So uh, uh, a good example of a realisation phase would be you'd probably be planning one of those around the playoffs when um, you know that you want to be at your at your best and you'd try and realise performance over that last two or three weeks of the competition. But there might be periods in the year as well that you're also trying to really uh, maximise performance. So you just want to give us a couple of examples of the compatible qualities that you talk about. I'm guessing that's across um, different physical qualities as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So look, I think one of the one of the things to acknowledge here as well is that when I when I talk about this, this is from the S and C um, aspect of the program. So in in preseason, we might be able mm-hmm. to control eighty percent of the training volume each week. So we can we can have a very we can be very structured in how we organise things. When that comes to in-season and the technical and tactical demands increase, uh, we might only be responsible or influencing 20 to 30% of the training load. So there, there's a lot of training that goes on outside this that doesn't fall under this sort of block periodised approach. But to give you an example, Rob, um, if we're in an accumulation phase, so we're trying to develop maximum strength qualities, from a conditioning perspective, we generally align our um, training to try and improve aerobic capacity. And we'd also have with our speed work, so we have that carrying on all year round, but we would focus a little bit more around our acceleration. So we're trying to develop force um, um, uh, capabilities in, in, the, in the weights room. So we'll try and also marry up our speed work to develop similar qualities. So looking at acceleration, we know that the foot's in contact with the ground for longer periods of time, and it's more a force-dominant movement than it is a emphasis on, say, the stretch shortening cycle. So they might be doing some um, sort of heavy-resisted sled work where there's a big force component. We might then have our plyometric program, might emphasise um, sort of... Um, jumps with longer foot contact times such as um, consecutive broad jumps so they've, the players have actually got time to try and produce some force um, or we might use jumps where there's no counter movement or we come from a bottom up position so again it's kind of force dominant or, or strength dominant type movements and then we align our as I said our aerobic training with that as well because we feel if we recover well and we structure our training week well and nutrition is um is on song that yes um, maybe the training responses are blunted to some degree but some of the evidence I've seen would certainly suggest you can develop strength and aerobic um, endurance uh, capacities simultaneously so that would be an example you know of how we try and align various areas of the program to this periodized model mm-hmm. so there's been a lot of debate recently and probably going back a long way with regards to um, MAS versus versus tempo Yep. Do you have a do you have a particular preference? Uh, we, we we do use MAS running. Um, I think looking in my experience of what I've found is that people tend to almost uh, become the MAS guy or become the tempo guy or they they get very compartmentalized in their thinking and I always look at this and say look there's there's a lot of tools in the toolbox. What tool is most appropriate for um for what we're trying to develop. And if that's MAS running, we'll do some MAS running. If it's something else, uh, maybe heart rate-based interval work. Um, there's some quite solid research supporting MAS. There's solid research supporting heart rate-based training. So we, um, I wouldn't say we have a, um, 
really specific method that we always go to. We'll look at what the evidence suggests works and then we'll try and apply that evidence in a, in a rugby context and try and transfer it into our training and motivate players and integrate that form of training and to try and get that training transfer as well. So I think like one a good example in New Zealand would be that if all we did out here was MAS running, we'd probably be out of a job because the players would hate it. It, it, it might be very effective, you know, from a developing that, that um, aspect of fitness, but is it is it hugely specific from say a muscular contraction point of view or the or the motor unit recruitment point of view it, it serves a purpose so we'll use it when we need to and then we'll use other things at, at different times as well so you've mentioned transfer a couple of times especially in the in the first um, section about uh, working in New Zealand how do you yep. how do you evidence that for coaches that are saying how does this how does what you're doing here affect what goes on the grass on a Saturday how are you evidencing that yeah, difficult to um, have really objective data to support whether it's working or not. But I think we, we, we have a couple of things. Like we've got experienced coaches and we've got some experienced and, and top-level players. And uh, if they're given the feedback that, hey, we feel that training is making us better or training is is preparing us really well to play the game, I think that's really important it would, it would be nice to for me to be able to sit here and say yeah Rob um, I've got this evidence to say that we've improved performance <laughs> by 10% but there's so many variables actually impact um, match performance obviously the opposition is a huge one it could be the weather it could be the style of rugby it could be the referee it could be you know there's a multitude of factors and to, to try and say that we're definitely improving performance or not is is pretty tough but um Having that feedback from players and coaches is, is really what we're basing this on. Obviously, we have our physical testing going on in the background as well. So we know if players are improving from whatever physical capacity we're trying to develop. Are they getting better, staying the same, or have they regressed? So we can track things that way. But the, the transfer to performance is a little bit more of a probably kind of touchy-feely um, subject. You know, it's not hard and fast evidence to support that. Mm-hmm. Just moving on to another subject that I want to want to cover, and that was uh, train load monitoring. Again, just want to give a bit of a, a kind of global um, philosophy around that, and then we'll delve a little bit deeper as we as we go. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's um, it's something that we've really started to um, focus on for particularly this season uh, and last season. We uh, and this is. Uh, probably been a downfall of mine in the past uh, we tended to operate a little bit more on our eyes and our ears and, and now we've, we're kind of trying to operate on eyes ears and numbers and it doesn't mean that one's more important than the other you know gut feel can be important but we're trying to provide now some objective data to support our gut feel and so this year we've aligned with um, Kitman Labs uh, which has been good so we now have a central database for our for our training load monitoring so um what we do is we get a session RPE uh, following every physical session and we track that load. So it's, it's pretty simple. Don't need uh, anything special for that on a database. Anyone can do that. We also punch in all our GPS numbers. Um, we do wellness, depending on the, on the week, it might be three to four times a week. We have various wellness questionnaires. We run some neuromuscular fatigue monitoring and we put all that uh, back into Kitman's. 
in the, like a lot of these athlete management systems that can generate certain alerts or flags if players are um, you know maybe using some of Gabbitt's work around the acute chronic workloads which is very popular at the moment you know if a player's demonstrating a higher workload than normal um, or maybe flags a neuromuscular fatigue test that the player might be a little bit fatigued so um, that it's still a work in progress um, it's an area that I say we are putting a lot of attention and detail into and um, I don't. I don't think we'll ever become a club that's purely driven by numbers, right, rightly or wrongly. I think it'll always be a combination of uh, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what the players are saying, and, and what the numbers are telling us. So you mentioned uh, neuromuscular fatigue tests. What kind of tests do you, do you Kitman offer? Something within their system? Or is yeah, it yeah. Something separate. It's a little bit separate. We for the neuromuscular fatigue we. Uh, we use our force plates. We do a, at the moment we do a weekly, um, so first day back at training, we just do a, a counter movement jump for our neuromuscular fatigue testing. We look at flight time over contraction time, so based on some of Stu Cormack's work in the AFL. Um, Kitman's slightly different. They offer a musculoskeletal screening system, which our physios um, are running that aspect of the programme, and that's we've slowly brought that in across the season because we had a few... Um, couple of new initiatives, you know, with the wellness questionnaires and everything going on at the start. We didn't want to overload it. So the physios on that part, but we use the, the counter movement jump on the on the four sticks for our um, neuromuscular fatigue. Just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Davey. Hope you enjoyed part one. So in part two, we're getting to a little bit of a chat around velocity-based training uh, and some of the innovative stuff that, the, um, that Davey and his team are doing up at the Hurricanes in New Zealand. So, just want to say a massive thanks again to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So this week I've been on the phone to uh, one of the guys who I know at the Seattle Seahawks, who is still giving rave reviews to the guys at Fatigue Science uh, and how it's helped them in their, uh, in their season preparation. The main thing, that I, the feedback that I've got from the guys, the Seahawks, and, and the benefit of Fatigue Science and the, what they're using it for is just the, the ease and simplicity of the syncing process. So the syncing process, by that I mean the, how, how the applied sports scientists there actually get the data on a central hub. And that's basically all the players wear the bands, they don't have anything to do. As soon as they come into that, that dressing room, uh, all that data then syncs the central hub, which is then accessible to the uh, to the applied sports scientists. So that's a massive thing for them um, and, and take, kind of taking another thing away from the players, um, but getting all the information that they need. So if you are wanting to get a little bit um, of more information on fatigue science and their sleep monitoring uh, system, you can go to fatiguescience.com or follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So part two coming up with Davey, um, hope you enjoy. We spoke a little before and, and last week about um, how you create this competitive environment and how that maybe links to the to the training loads that you want to um, elicit from that session. You just want to talk to us a little bit about how you can create that intense environment to get the intensity that you need from the session. Yeah, absolutely, and like I think a lot we contribute to this competitiveness, but we're we're lucky. We've got a bunch of players that are um, 
highly competitive. Well, we've got some guys in the squad are highly competitive, and most of the guys are competitive. So whenever an element of competition is introduced, the intensity just goes up, and I'm sure uh, that's the same in a lot of clubs around the world and in different sports. But um, examples of things we do, um, we'll, we'll always on our game day minus two, we'll do some um, time speed work. So we'll have our, our lights out in the gym, Guys get really competitive. We do some five or ten meter sprints. Guys are always looking to see if they've got better. Uh, how have they beaten their mates? Um, we use a little bit of velocity based training, where we may have players, um, you know, try to jump squat a certain weight uh, and looking at the the mean velocity across that movement, and they compete against each other. Um, on the training field, we'll we like to try and get. This year, we've really focused in uh, one of my colleagues, Dave Waldash, who's a, who's a really good operator. He he brought this in, and we're really focusing on our on our high speed, or should really say sprinting meters above eighty five percent of max velocity, based on um, some of the recent work out of uh, I think it was Shane Malone out of out of Ireland. So we. Uh, we use some competitive sprints and training to try and chalk up these meters. We've found if we just ask players to, um, we don't do it every week, but if we just ask players to to sort of run quickly over 40 meters, they, um, they sometimes don't attain the required velocity. So we've developed a bunch of drills that we use now, which might be very simple, but have a competitive element to it. And all of a sudden, none of the players want to lose. And that just increases the velocity and then we get exactly what we, we want from the training stimulus and the players actually enjoy coming to training because they're competing and, and having fun and you know the whoever wins is um, is giving their mate a little bit of grief as well <laughs> so do you use velocity based training any other times of the week apart from that match day minus two D- depends on the depends on the, the the block we're in rob so if we're in a, a speed strength block where we're, we tend to um obviously move sort of light to moderate weights we'll, we'll usually have the, the gym wears out if we're in a, a max strength um, phase uh, we tend just to keep those away and we just um, we just get guys to lift um, on a percentage based system and we don't worry too much about the movement speed however in saying that that's maybe something we're going to evolve to moving forward um, I know one of the lies that lads out the Irish uh, pro teams had um, quite a good paper or sort of commentary I suppose on, on using the velocity based training I think it was out of Leinster and it might be something we look at to see if we can actually enhance um, the strength element in the programme as well using it so that's something to down the track to consider mm-hmm. So when it comes to future directions at, at the Hurricanes what, what other things do you think you could potentially improve or what things have got in the pipeline that could be kind of innovative on that on that front yeah um the the probably two that uh, pop into my mind would be around our you know sort of go back to our periodization models that i listened uh, to something recently and it, it's tricky when you, when you talk about periodization and i can sit down in the off season and i can map out you know a reasonably detailed periodized plan for a player but i actually have no idea how each individual within that's going to respond. So we're now, um, as I mentioned recently, we've just moved on to the, the forced X plates and we're developing a, a power profile, I suppose you'd call it. And um, I think that's got a real merit around our periodized model. And what what our sort of vision of this is, is that we'll have regular, um, maybe four times a year, 
our main power profiles, but we'll have more regular mini profiles running alongside that maybe every three to four weeks. And that way we can actually, in the gym environment, we can track how players are responding to the training stimulus. And if they're still improving, we might keep them on that stimulus for a bit longer. If a guy's plateaued, might indicate it's time to move to a new stimulus. And rather than um, me writing a four-week max strength cycle and then after four weeks everyone moves on some players may continue on for another four weeks of max strength some players might move on after three weeks some players might do something quite different and then how do we also then align our our plyometric work with the the type of athlete that we're dealing with so not everyone um has the same strengths and weaknesses in their in their power profile so I think where we're heading is it's going to provide us uh, with a lot of information and allow us to really tailor our, our plans to the individual, uh, which I think is really exciting. The other, the other big area, which is uh, a little bit different probably, is looking at this um, concept of how do we get players to um, produce more effort. So not saying at the moment our players lack effort, but... Um, when you look at some of the work of, say, Samuel Mercora, I think his surname's pronounced in the coming out of the UK, and of some colleagues in um, other sort of walks of life that uh, require their, their people to demonstrate high levels of effort, is how can we coach effort and um, get players to continue to push themselves a little bit harder and a little bit further, and how do we tap into their internal drivers and their motivators that are um, important to them to try and continue to push them on and I think um, it's certainly an area that I've, I've looked at a little bit by no way an expert in and um, just seems interesting around that kind of neuroscience uh, perception of effort how, what's the reward from pushing yourself hard and I think that could be well that is something we've got to have a look at as well and, and try and integrate into the programme in some way That's interesting that I'd like to, I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into that concept yep how would you on the surface of it how would you think that would go do you just want to kind of build it out a little bit with regards to what actually i'm guessing it's what the, actually makes these guys tick yeah yeah it is so I've, I've run a little process um over the last couple of years and it and when it when it's done right it's it's so powerful and rewarding both for the player and um, in this case myself that delivered it but I'll take the player, the player, so it's a one-on-one, -on -one, take the player through a process where he identifies his goals and, and where he wants to get to in, in rugby and then actually identify that to get to get to that point, what does he need to do physically? What does he need to look like physically? And, and the player will tell you that he, for example, he may say, I need to gain three kgs of lean muscle mass, I need to improve my uh, aerobic capacity, which uh, there might be two or three other things. And then we delve into, and this is the, the bit I want to learn more about, is how do we get the players to open up and really be honest with what drives them uh, each day? So what gets them out of bed in the morning to come to work excited when it's a wet, windy, cold Wellington day? And and some players are really open and honest with that, and, it, and it, it's so rewarding when that happens. And if this process is done right, the player almost locks himself into his development plan without me doing anything because he's already told me what he needs to do or what he needs to develop to get to his goals and now he's opened up and told me the reason he wants to achieve these goals is because uh, again as an example maybe it's to 
provide for his kids a better life than he had when he was a when he was a kid. So quite powerful um, internal drivers, and I think if we can get that, it doesn't. And then in some ways, it doesn't really matter if I go and write a weights program that has got six sets of three squats or five sets of five or five sets of two. What matters is that player's coming to work and he's coming to work with a fire inside him burning. And if I ask him to then do six sets of three, he's got to go and do six sets of three as hard as he can. And he's got to change physically. Just like if I gave him five sets of two, he's probably got to change just to the same extent. And I think that's... uh, it's an area that I've, I've touched on in our game. Like I'm certainly um, no expert at all, Rob, but um, when these things are done right, it, it's so motivating. And then when you, when you see players having a bad day or you think that effort's dropping, you can just have that quiet word in the ear and say, hey, remember why you're here. And I think that's a real, um, not a missing ingredient around performance, but you know it could give us a performance advantage. And um, a couple of other things we're looking at, just we're discussing anyway, is for example, um, if we're doing our fitness testing, and I'm, I'm a bit of a believer now that players we do the same. We use the YoYo uh, IR one as our as our main fitness test, and I think players because they've done it now for a few years and multiple times a year, they're almost conditioned to get to a certain level, and then um, and then some guys really push on and max out, and some guys drop out a little bit early because they know they've done enough to fly under the radar and I think it's an interesting um, mental state so what we're tossing up at the moment is do we actually uh, try and record or do that test without the voice telling the players what level and shuttle they're at so they now just hear the beeps but you don't know you don't know actually where you're at and where does the player actually end up and then before you tell the player what his result was actually asking them uh, maybe on a 1 to 10 scale what was your effort in that test so now the player's in this little kind of grey zone of right uh, he could be honest and say look I maxed out I gave it a 10 out of 10 which is fantastic and we say so your result is this and then but if a player never gave his maximum effort obviously he's not sure quite how he performs so he more than likely might be honest in his effort and I think that's quite interesting to look at why the players like that but then also it doubles back on us as well from a physical development point of view that if if we do the yo-yo test early in pre-season and a guy only gives a 7 out of 10 effort and then six weeks later we do it again and he gives a 10 out of 10 effort, I can guarantee that player's got to have improved his performance. It might be nothing to do with the, the pre-season training. So maybe all the training we've done has been less than effective, but just based on that yo-yo performance, it looks really good. So there's a kind of, um, you know, it's a, something about talking about and how we actually end up going down this route I'm not 100% sure yet but I think that gives you a little flavour hopefully of um, kind of what we're thinking the lines that we're we're looking at No absolutely and in that scenario it's got to be the right environment so players can be candid enough to say that I gave an 8 or I gave a 7 yeah. and knowing that you're not going to get your ass kicked and you have to do it again because you didn't give a 10 yeah, exactly, exactly. Like having that, you know, I've been lucky I've been here a while and, and um, he, as you hear longer, you develop a trust and there's a there's a real respect. I respect every player regardless of how many times he's gone in the field. When you see what these guys put their bodies through, you can't help but respect what they do. And having that professional respect and trust and honesty with each other is, is key. And I think these guys are human beings. They're like anyone, you know. Every day I come to work, I can't honestly say it's a 10 out of 10. Some days you're a bit flat everyone's like that and I don't think it's a surprise that um, 
you know, to think that we could do a, a yo-yo test or it might be a, a repeat speed test or it might be an on-field, uh, what we call the Bronco, like a 1,200-metre shuttle run test. I think if we do that on a Monday morning, you can guarantee that if there's 40 guys doing that test, that not everyone is feeling great that day. And um, if guys are honest with their effort, um, and I think that could be quite an interesting thing to look at. So one thing that I just wanted to come back to with regards to the power profile, um, just take it back a couple of minutes. What does that power profile look like that you get from from Forstec? Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about that and build that out a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our profile involves, we, um, we do a counter-movement jump unloaded, and we do the same with 50 kgs, so a loaded kind of movement jump. We do a squat jump unloaded and a squat jump with 50 kgs. We do a drop jump, uh, which we we use a standard 40 centimeter um, box height, and we have a 200 millisecond ground contact cutoff time. And we also do an isometric mid thigh pull. And um, we, so that gives us uh, obviously some, a, a huge number of variables to look at, and we can compare some performances to get like a dynamic strength index or have a look at the EUR of a player and basically try and build a profile of what is that, what's that athlete um, able to do and what does he not do very well. Can he jump well unloaded, but he doesn't tolerate load very well, as an example. So we, um, I've been speaking to, um, uh, a few people, uh, Mike McWiggin, who's published a lot in this area, Travis McMaster over in New Zealand, and Stu Cormack in, uh, in Aussie, who, who are some of the gurus in this area, and, uh, and Daniel Cohen at, at Forstex as well. And we're actually now, initially, we're, we're looking at peak power and peak force. And, um, you know, listening to Daniel's podcast the other day, um, we've probably gone down the route of looking at the wrong variables. So the power profile we're doing, we feel is pretty robust. Um, but we're now looking at, um, you know, go to look at things like impulse, start looking at the eccentric rate of force development. We can pick up asymmetries from there, looking at some load tolerance work uh, or, or variables. And um, so the, the profile itself not going to change, but how we're analysing the results is, is definitely a, uh, evolving as we speak. And, you know, I'm, ch- I'm chatting to Daniel tomorrow morning to go uh, more in depth on this as well. And um, it's quite an exciting time. The players have enjoyed getting the feedback. Um, we have another guy who works with us, James Dickey, who's um, a bit sharper on the Excel than myself. And he's developed some nice um, sort of radar plots, spider plots, you know, to, to demonstrate if they're improving or, or what areas, is, is our training actually effective? And um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of uh, where we're at with, with that side of things. Nice. So one thing, and last thing I wanted to, uh, to, to speak to you about was the, the kind of relationship with yourself and, and your staff and obviously you've become come from the assistant to the head, but how does that how does what you do now as head, how does that filter down to maybe assistants that you have or interns or people that come into the club? Yeah, so um, we have a we have a relatively small staff. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's myself, uh, Dave Walrash and, and and James has joined us this season. Um, part of the reason he joined us this year is I'm also studying uh, my master's through um, the Australian Catholic Uni in Melbourne and so this season's been a bit different uh, over here I've been um, part-time um, in, the, in, the, in the Hurricanes environment and full-time studying at different times of the year and then full-time at work and outside the semester so it's been a little bit different so 
Dev has, has really stepped up. He's a good S&C coach in his own right, and he's sort of led the day-to-day programme uh, this season. I've been more of a overseeing, coordinating type role, and that's something that um, I've probably evolved into over the last few years. Um, you know, a few years ago, even in the head S&C role, I was more hand, much more hands-on, always involved, you know, right on the coalface, and I've gradually just moved back in some areas. And um, I think allowing your staff to grow and having areas of responsibility. So so James is is uh, responsible for our return to play program. Dave does a lot of work around our um, speed development program and we work together on all aspects of what we're doing. So one of the beauties of having a small department is we can just have really easy conversations. Everyone knows what's going on and um, it's fantastic trying to empower them to have leadership in certain areas and then I can... Um, not sit as if I know everything, but you know I can challenge the thinking just like they can come and challenge my thinking on what we're doing. And so, so there's real benefits of the small department. Obviously, there's there's some challenges as well. Um, the bigger the, the 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 department, the there's probably more likelihood that you can employ people who are real specialists in their area. So so some some clubs might employ a a power coach, for example, a strength and power coach who might be responsible for the weights room and say the power profile, and they might be able to go a little bit more in depth and uh, analyze the results to a greater degree than we can because we are, we are spread more thinly across a, a whole range of areas. So it's important, I think, with the staff that, that they grow, they feel they feel valued, that they've got input into the program, that they're listened to and respected, and it allows them to glow, uh, grow and, and sort of flourish. And, and that's part of the job, I think, of heading up a program um, is to allow people to, to grow and under you. Mm-hmm. And what advice would you give to S&C coaches? And one one thing that's come across my uh, desk a couple of times recently is guys that from the UK who want to move abroad and want to get into Australia or specifically uh, America. Yeah. What advice would you give to them guys? Yeah, like I think it's fantastic to 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 spread your wings. You know. Um, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. I think the models that are used in the UK will certainly be different from those used in the States. So I've no experience up in the US, but and they'll be different from Australia and they'll be slightly different again in New Zealand. So the more exposures you can get to different training philosophies and methodologies, the better. And again, I stress, I don't think there's necessarily one that's better than the other. It's just it's just different. There's, there's usually factors and quite a lot of them are cultural on how things operate. So I think getting that experience is is, uh, is good if you can do it. Um, a lot of guys I see now who maybe apply for internships with us, um, it's quite interesting. They'll be very well versed academically. They'll, they'll probably have their masters. and um, But when you ask them about their coaching experience, they, they might never have really coached anyone. So I think uh, if you're one of those guys at university now, like I would highly suggest getting out there Offering your services to coach athletes, coach coach youth teams, just get get used to speaking with coaches, players, and um, you'll be amazed what you can learn just by uh, running sessions with um, a group of under fifteen kids. You know, sometimes it's probably harder than working with pro athletes. And, Too right. Yeah, and and I think that like those skills that can be developed in conjunction with the studies um, are, are really important. We we see people who. They come across really well on a CV and a piece of paper, but um, you put them in front of some people and they, f- they freeze, they have no presence, so they, they don't know how to hold their body language or they can't sometimes sense. Um, we might have a warm-up plan, for example, here, 
sometimes you just go in the field and with experience of being around players, you get that feeling that what you've planned is actually not going to be very good today and you just change it on the spot. And I think you only get that by working with people and the earlier you can start that process, um, the better. Because it is, it's, it's bloody competitive for guys trying to get to get jobs now. So anything you can do that like, gets you to stand out a little bit, I think uh, will be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Good advice. So where can where can people um, get in touch with you, Dave? Is you're on Twitter? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm not a huge uh, tweeter, and I tend to just read more stuff. But I'm there at uh, a stalker. Yeah, just follow people. At <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I'm at David Gray. So D A V I E G R A Y. And if um, if people are interested, look more than happy for them to to contact me through there. Um, just keep pestering me if I'm a bit slow in coming back. Depends on the time of year when you get in touch. Um, sometimes there'll be uh, busier times than others, but more than happy for for people to get in touch. And likewise, we um, always welcome for people that are coming through New Zealand and Wellington, obviously, if they want to come in and spend some time with us. Um, really open door policy here. It's fantastic to um, just chat with people from different sports, um, different environments, and uh, we certainly don't think we know it all and more than happy to share what we do and, and try and learn from other people. So if you're passing through Wellington, just uh, feel free to drop us a line. Superb. Thanks for that, mate. Well, thanks for giving me time, David, for the last uh, 45 minutes and, and having a good chat. So I'm going to let you go and get on with your evening. No, no worries, Rob. Look, thanks so much again for... Uh, for having me on, like I know, I know a lot of people do say this, but the work you're doing is is fantastic. I know I learned a lot uh, from the podcast I listen to. I love uh, going for a run, listening or driving into work and home, and um, so I think the work you're doing is fantastic. And it's been a real privilege to um, to have jumped on, and hopefully it's uh, been of interest to some people. Well, thank you very much, and no doubt it will be. I'm I'm pretty confident of that. So yeah, we'll um we'll keep in touch, and uh, thanks again. Sounds good, mate. Cheers, Rob. Cheers, pal. See you later. See you, Thanks for tuning in to episode 142 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoy the chat with Davey. If you are enjoying the podcast uh, and the guests and the information that has been put out, don't forget to subscribe on your chosen podcast player, whether that be iTunes, Podbean, um, Stitcher, whatever it may be. Just click that subscribe button uh, and you will automatically download all the podcasts as they go live every week. So thanks again for your massive support. Hope you're enjoying the information and I will speak to you soon.